It's a wonderful privilege to be back with you today to finish our talks about the fourfold gospel in our discussion of the CMA DNA. Today we want to talk about Jesus Christ, our coming King. Anthony Ashley Cooper, the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury, was a member of the British House of Lords during the Industrial Revolution. As one of Parliament's most active reformers, he was responsible for much of the social legislation enacted during that period. He authored two factory acts which brought safer working conditions and better pay to England's working classes. He was a major force behind the establishment of the child labor laws, and he also sponsored legislation to protect and care for the mentally ill. His legislative efforts were not always appreciated by the industrialists and the investors, who had a greater concern for the bottom line of profit than for the welfare of those who worked in England's burgeoning factories. Sometime near the end of his life, in answer to a question about what motivated him to take on all of these sometimes unpopular causes, Shaftesbury is reputed to have said, In the last 40 years, I do not believe that I've spent one conscious hour without thinking about the return of Jesus Christ. An overstatement? Perhaps. But it goes a very long way toward explaining the career of one of England's most persistent and productive social reformers. I like that story because I think it captures two or three of the most important reasons why our belief in the second coming of Jesus Christ is so important. The first is this. History is not just an endless recycling of meaningless events and actions. What happens in a country or a nation has importance because history is going somewhere. It's moving toward a goal, a culmination. And that culmination is an event, the return to the earth of Jesus Christ, who is not only my personal Savior, but the Lord of history. Now, I could probably talk about this for a very long time, but suffice it to say at this point that what happens in our world matters very much. And Christians believe that all of history is moving toward a divinely governed and a divinely ordained climax the return of Jesus Christ the King. Now the second idea that's embedded in Shaftesbury's observation is that my choices, my personal choices, ought to be made and my personal actions ought to be taken in light of that reality. That is because Jesus is coming again because all of history is inexorably moving toward that great climactic event. I need to govern my personal choices in light of that fact, the third idea, very closely connected to the second, is that linked to the fact of the return of Jesus Christ is the Bible's teaching that when he returns, every human being will face what the Bible describes as the judgment seat of Christ. And we will be accountable to him for every thought and every word and every action. So it really does matter how we live our lives. That very same preoccupation is evident on nearly every page in the New Testament. It's the stated or implied reason behind nearly every ethical injunction in the writings of the apostles. And without question, it framed the focal point of the life of the early church. The first generation of Christians even began their ordinary interactions with this greeting. Maranatha, 
That's an Aramaic expression that means the Lord is coming. The final pillar of the fourfold gospel, the Christological summary upon which the spiritual DNA of the Christian and Missionary Alliance is built, is Jesus Christ our coming King. That expression captures the very same passion exemplified by the apostolic band, by the Earl of Shaftesbury, and by millions of other devoted followers of our Lord down through the centuries. It is, to use the words of the Apostle Paul, our blessed hope. The Christian belief in the second coming of Christ is rooted in the experience of the followers of Jesus, who a few days before the day of Pentecost gathered on a mountain to listen to the last teaching of the resurrected Christ. He commissioned them to be his witnesses to the entire world. And then, as they watched breathlessly, he ascended into heaven. While they stood gazing at the sky, two angels appeared, and they delivered this message. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. That's in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. And the clarification of these words and the equally clear teaching of the entire New Testament when speaking about this subject is that Christ's second coming will be personal. That is, he himself, physically, not some representative individual or group, will return to the earth. Further, his return will be both public and visible. That is, we'll be able to see him come. In fact, the writer of the book of Revelation says, every eye will see him. We're also told that when Christ returns, he won't be alone. He'll be accompanied by many thousands of his holy ones, the angels. That's in Jude 14. And by the ones who have fallen asleep, that is, the Christians who've died in the years between his ascension into heaven and the time of his return. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 Now, I don't know if you've ever really thought about what that's going to be like. But if you truly believe that this is going to happen, and that is what we will believe, it will change everything. Thousands of books have been written with the intent of exploring all the things that are going to happen when Jesus Christ returns to the earth. And we certainly don't have time now to review them all. But here are just a few of the things that the Bible says will happen. Jesus Christ will be vindicated in the eyes of the entire race that saw him crucified. Revelation 1.7 Now, the last time anyone except for a small group of believers saw Jesus Christ, he was dead. Hanging on a cross, defeated, dishonored, destroyed. But when he returns, defeat will turn into victory. The dishonored one will be seen to be the Lord of all creation. And that one who was thought to have been destroyed, he will become the destroyer of sin and death and evil. Next, the Bible says that the whole of creation will be liberated from the curse imposed upon it after the sin of Adam in the garden. That's in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Isaiah 11, 1. Have you ever stopped to think about what it might have been like if Adam and Eve had not chosen to sin against God? Paul writes in Romans 8 that the whole of creation is groaning, longing for its redemption. 
And he says that redemption is going to come when Christ returns to the earth. There are a number of passages in Scripture that hint at the amazing changes that will occur when Christ returns. Then we're told that God's righteous reign will be established upon the earth for a thousand years. That's in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Now, you need to know that some Christians believe that the passages like the ones in Revelation 20, which speak about Christ physically ruling on the earth for a thousand years, may be figurative, not literal. But in fact, the Bible does talk about a millennial reign, a thousand year period when Christ will rule on the earth. A time when you and I will physically see what things would have been like if sin had not entered into the world of humanity. Next, we're told that after Christ returns, all of humanity will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus himself talked about this in a parable that he taught in Matthew chapter 25. Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in other places as well. And there's more teaching about it in the book of Revelation. I need to be very clear about this because I don't want you to be confused. The Bible makes it very clear that if we have been regenerated, if Jesus Christ is our Savior, then we need not be afraid of this judgment because He paid the penalty for all of our sins and they've been forgiven. But the sad reality is that for the rest of humanity, for those who have not acknowledged Him as Lord, He is not their Savior. For them, He's only their judge. For them, the judgment seat of Christ will only be a time of terrible and final condemnation. Finally, the ultimate destruction of Satan and of sin will be accomplished. That's also in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. The Bible says that Satan and evil will finally be destroyed, and then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will be forever with the Lord. Now that's a very brief summary of what the Bible teaches about the second coming of Christ. There's still one big question, though, that we want to briefly consider. When will Christ return? Now, since it's clear from the New Testament that the writers of Scripture expected that the Lord's return would come very quickly, there are many skeptics who have suggested that nearly 2,000 years ought to be enough time to convince us that they were mistaken. The Scripture, however, anticipates that attitude and warns us in places like 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-10, to that while God restrains His judgment, just as He did in the time of Noah, so that more time can be given to men to repent and turn to Him, this gesture of patience will be misinterpreted. The majority of humanity will conclude that the promise of Christ's return is nothing more than a pious fiction. And so His return will catch them off guard, like the coming of a thief in the night. While many so-called students of the Word have devoted their lives to predicting the time of Christ's return, something the Bible, by the way, tells us no one can know, there is one thing we can be sure of. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a testimony to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Now, that is the one thing that we can be sure of. When the task that Christ gave us to do is finished, 
Then the king will return. This is why we sometimes talk about our mission by saying that we are busy working to bring back the king. Now, let me summarize everything we've said very simply. The whole focus of the New Testament's teaching about the return of Christ can be summarized in just two simple propositions. Number one, because Christ is coming, we need to be ready. That is, we need to live lives that are pure and steadfast and prayerful and holy and reverent. And two, because Christ is coming, we need to finish the task that he gave us to do. The preaching of the gospel to all the nations. Maranatha, the Lord is coming. Are you ready? Are you busy? There's a uh, passage of scripture that is not in your outline, but it's one that uh, came to me this morning as I was watching this from 1 John chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. 1 John chapter 3. In that passage, John uh, writes, beginning in verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, talks about uh, when we come to that end of life and we uh, bury our loved ones, Paul is bringing comfort and hope and encouragement, and he says that 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 we sow in the ground uh, is a seed, and we don't uh, know exactly what kind of uh, life it's going to bring forth because we sow something that is mortal. We sow something that is susceptible to disease. We sow something that is temporary, but we put it in the ground and it comes forth and it has a spiritual body and a spiritual vitality. And he relates that to um, typical sowing and planting like a corn of uh, wheat or something. He says you put the seed in the ground, but out of it comes a plant and it has the leaves and it has uh, fruit on it or it has uh, ears of corn or whatever like that. So he says there there is... The glory of God in immortality and the resurrection. And as he's talking about that, John, some years later, begins to address this issue again in this passage in 1 John chapter 3, when he says, We know, however, that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. Uh, I don't know uh, how deeply you've thought into this matter, but when our Lord Jesus Christ took humanity upon himself in the incarnation. That was not temporary. He accepted a human body for all of eternity. He identified with our humanity and he was made like we are. And the scripture says that in the resurrection, it was his human body that was raised out of the tomb. The disciples saw it ascend into the heavens. And while he spent that time with them, approximately 40 days before the ascension, 
we learned some things about his body. We learned that it was recognizable. Some people are confused by some of the passages of Scripture that suggest that he was not readily recognized. But the disciples on the road to Emmaus uh, kind of had their eyes covered so that they would not instantly recognize him until the moment he revealed himself. Mary was weeping, and the last thing she expected to do was to see him alive standing there by the garden tomb. But as soon as he spoke her name, he, she knew who he was. And when he appeared to the disciples in the room where they were meeting with the doors locked and the windows closed and, and everything shut up and he appeared there, they recognized him for who he was. And he had a, a real body. He said, touch me, check me out, see that I'm real. I'm not an appearance, I'm not an apparition, a ghost, a spirit. I'm real, test me out, touch my hands, touch my side. And so we learned that Jesus Christ had the familiar voice, and He had a familiar face, and He had a familiar body, but it was resurrected in glory because we also learned that He appeared in that room without bothering to open the door or raise the window, that He just appeared there in the midst of them. And John says, we know that when Jesus Christ comes back, we will be like Him in His resurrected human glory. We will be made like Him in that. Some people think that, uh, you know, He died to make us like God. We didn't do that. He died to restore our humanity to all of its fullness that God had intended it to be. And so, John says when we have this hope, when we have this sense of the return of Jesus Christ, when we anticipate His coming and we look forward to that, this is a purifying hope. It, it helps us to keep our focus straight. It helps us to, to make it through the tough times. It gives us the strength that we need spiritually to keep on keeping on when everybody seems to be going the other way. It's the, it's the impetus that we need to keep following Jesus Christ. He's coming back and we're going to be like Him because we're going to see Him in His resurrected glory and be made just like that. I want to highlight a couple of things that John Soper said in his video and maybe uh, expand them a little bit. One of the things he said is that the Bible teaches that all of history is going somewhere. The flow of history is moving in a God-directed goal. You know, if we have a biblical worldview, and if we have a worldview that has the return of Jesus Christ as a part of our blessed hope, it changes the way that we look at things. We're in an election year, and we're hearing all the political banter going back and forth, and there are people who behave as if everything rises or falls on the outcome of the election, whether or not we survive or not, whether or not this nation survives. Uh, our well-being and our welfare hinges on the outcome of the election. Friends, we're citizens of heaven. Our well-being hinges on Jesus Christ, not the outcome of an election. We read in the newspapers, and, and it's getting more and more as violence increases, and these crazy random shootings, and people being killed in the streets, and it's like, what in the world is going on? Well, the Scripture tells us what is going on. It tells us that there is a flow of history that started with creation and started with the garden, and it goes all the way to the coming of Jesus Christ, and that this planet is the site of a cosmic battle that is going on between Satan and the powers of darkness and Jesus Christ 
and all of righteousness and glory as they battle over the destiny of human beings. Sometimes we lose sight of the fact that we're in a cosmic war. And we who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are part of the answer, part of the solution as we bring the gospel message that points people to hope eternally in Jesus Christ. It does not lie in politics. It doesn't lie in in somehow getting the nation turned around. That would only be temporary at best. I'm not suggesting that we not take any interest whatsoever. In fact, in our 8 o'clock service, um, someone had been in a family reunion and they learned of a relative that was running for uh, public office, state legislature in the state of Minnesota. And as you know, we heard that report, um, they are committed Christians. They love the Lord. They love His Word. And, and my conviction is, amen. We need more godly people who will uh, take it upon themselves to run for public office, who will bring salt and light into that arena. We need, we need to be prayerful about election time. We need to be prayerful about uh, for whom we vote. Uh, we need to look at their platform and evaluate their position. Oftentimes, we're faced with choosing the lesser of evils. But we still need to line it up with Scripture and choose the candidates that most clearly or at least come closest to representing a biblical worldview. We have a responsibility to pray for people in authority and pray for our nation. The Scripture tells us that. Paul writes um, to Timothy and he says, Pray for those in authority and for kings and for rulers for one reason, that we can have peace to continue to promote and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, all of these things are temporary. They're all limited. When this history as we know it in this age that we're living in comes to its final conclusion, the Bible tells us that there is going to be one nation who is the focus and apple of God's eye. And Israel will be standing alone with no hope until she actually sees her Redeemer uh, coming and bursting through the clouds and coming in clouds of glory to be her salvation. Until that moment, Israel is all alone. And in those final hours, final months and years of human history as we know it right now, the Bible is very clear that all the other nations of the world will be aligned with the Antichrist. There is no future for the United States of America in any way in a godly platform at the end of the age. We're not there. We're not in the Bible. We're not in the history. We're not going to be some holdout of a righteous nation. This nation is going to go the way of all the rest of the world and follow the Antichrist. We need to be sober about that. We need to have our eyes open and ourselves alert because politics is not the solution. Economics is not the solution. The solution to this world is Jesus Christ. And while we are salt and light in the place that we're planted in this moment, we need to live with a biblical worldview that has our eyes fixed on the return of Jesus Christ. History is going somewhere. It's not just happening It's on a course. 
And as we move closer to the end and Satan's power begins to be more and more obvious and demonstrated, the scripture says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and children are going to turn against their parents and parents against their children and and there's going to be anarchy and rebellion and dissension and and the world is going to progress to greater kinds of evil and just as it was in the days of Noah where basically morality has gone out the window and marriage is a forgotten contract and all of those things have changed where the world is basically totally locked in an evil empire and I don't mean Russia but the whole world is locked in this evil following of the Antichrist. The Scripture says Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And, and as it moves in that direction, it only means, as Jesus said to his disciples, lift up your eyes when you see all of these things begin to happen. Because you know that your redemption is drawing near. And then the Bible says, right before this planet is done as we know it. Jesus Christ will return and plant His feet on this earth in a personal and literal way as the last Adam. The first Adam had an opportunity stretching out before Him in creation, which He um, gave up in His sin and turned away and plunged the whole world into sin. But the Scripture says the last Adam will come and get it right when Jesus Christ plants His feet on this earth and establishes His kingdom. All of the, the effects of sin are going to be essentially upended and turned back toward a reign of righteousness. The Bible tells us that during that thousand years, the devil and all of his angels and wicked spirits are going to be locked away. And as Jesus Christ reigns upon this earth, some phenomenal things are going to happen. Isaiah tells us that wolves and lambs are going to lie down together in the field without any fear. That lions are going to eat straw like the oxen. And that little children are going to play with poisonous snakes. Those of mothers of you that get terrified when your kids pick up insects or critters that they find in the yard, just wait till they bring home a cobra or a moccasin or something like that, but they, they will be able to play with poisonous snakes and they won't harm them. Not even sure they'll be poisonous anymore. The scripture says they'll play at the adder's den and there will be no harm. It says that if a person dies at the age of a hundred, you will say, oh my, why did they go so young? Because it will be normal to live hundreds of years again in good health. Because Jesus Christ is going to uh, re-establish a reign of righteousness and demonstrate what might have been if sin had not entered the picture. And then the Bible tells us at the end of that period of time, at the final conclusion, after that thousand years, there's going to be a judgment. Revelation calls it the great white throne, and at that judgment, all the dead of all the ages are going to be raised to stand before God. The Bible says the books are going to be open and every deed that they've ever done is going to be uh, read aloud for all the universe to know. And those who do not have a covering for their sin, who are not found in Jesus Christ with the cleansing and forgiveness of His blood, the Bible says will be banished to the lake of fire. And those who are covered 
and cleansed by the blood of Christ will move on with him into the new heaven and the new earth for all of eternity. Now, in the midst of these things, the Bible says that we have a great responsibility. Because Jesus did say, when this gospel of the kingdom has been preached to all the nations, then the end will come. And that was specifically in response to their question, Lord, tell us, when will the end be and and the sign of your coming? And he answered them uh, in great detail in Matthew 24 and 25, but he gave us this marker. He said the gospel of, of the kingdom has to be preached in every nation. You know, it is God's desire. And John saw this vision as he looked in Revelation chapter 5. He said, I saw before the throne there gathered from every tribe, a great multitude from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. God's desire is that in His eternal kingdom there be representatives of every people group on the planet, representatives of every race, representatives of every language group, representatives of every culture and of every nation, that out of all the world some will be saved from every one. You know, when I look at people uh, today, I, I see differences in all of you. You look different. You have a unique voice. You, you all laugh differently. I love to hear people laugh, and sometimes I kind of know you by your laugh or by your voice. Um, you have quirks. So do I, you know, that stand out, that make you who you are. And um, e- even aside from things that we might consider uh, unattractive, there are many, many things about you that in your uniqueness make you beautiful and special and precious to God. And we, we learn to love each other that way. We learn to cherish one another because of those uniqueness, uniquenesses that we all have. And I find that it's just a delight to, to get to know uh, people and, and see those differences and to celebrate them. And you know, that's true of cultures too. Cultures have personalities. They have uh, special things that make them stand out, that are really precious and valued. And uh, God desires to have that in His eternal kingdom. He wants people from every color, of every skin tone, of every language group, with every cultural nuance. He wants them represented like a beautiful bouquet in His eternal kingdom. That there will be some representative of every human uh, being on the planet, that there will be some there from every different background. I, I have to say, parenthetically, in the face of a biblical worldview and an understanding of God's purposes, I can simply not understand prejudice. It makes absolutely no sense. I cannot figure out why uh, people disparage one another uh, on the basis merely of their background or their culture. It's just beyond my comprehension. I know it happens. It's obvious. It happens all over the planet. But it's such a sad thing. We all are related. We all come from Adam. And after him, we all come from Noah. And after that, we all have the privilege of coming together again through the blood of Jesus Christ and being one family. What a marvelous privilege God has given us. And it is His desire that everyone have the opportunity to be a part of that forever family. 
And so Jesus said, as you go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. The word there is literally of all the ethnic groups. Make disciples of all the groups, of all the nations. Teach them to to observe the things that I've commanded you, and I will be with you even until the ends of the age. It is the mission. It is the mission of the church out of love for Jesus Christ to carry His message of salvation to every person on the planet that they can have an opportunity to hear. It's not simply out of love for Christ and His glory. It is that. It's all of that. But it's because He loves them. We love Him and He loves them and we must go. And He longs to be glorified in their salvation. And we have the privilege of loving Him by sharing His message with people all over the planet. That's one of the driving uh, impulses of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, to carry the name of Jesus Christ everywhere to where He has never been named. We have always been a pioneer mission group in the sense that we have always wanted to be carrying the gospel message where it had not been previously heard. Some of you recently, you know, every time uh, we make big changes, people get nervous and upset, and and, uh, I I understand that. We all resist change. It's just a part of being human, I think. But many of you have heard that we have closed a lot of our work in South America. We have pulled a lot of our missionaries out. Others have uh, retired and you know some people say why don't we have uh, missionary work in South America well because there's a strong church throughout South America and the nations of South America many of the countries have strong churches strong national churches they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ they've been discipled they're able to reach their own people they're just like we are they they come together and worship the Lord Jesus and they go into their neighborhoods and witness and share their faith in Christ and and that church has been established and so some of those missionaries have been deployed to other places in the world where resources are being given to, to carry the name of Jesus Christ where He is not known. Because it is the conviction that when the gospel message has gone to every people group and the last person has had the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ that will respond to Him, then the end will come. God tells us that when the gospel message is preached and the Holy Spirit begins to work with individuals, as they open their heart and life to Him, they come to know Him as Lord and Savior. But interestingly enough, in the foreknowledge of God, those names have already been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Way back from the foundation of the world, God has known the name of every man, woman, and child that would ever trust Him as Lord and Savior. And he knows who is the last name in the book. When I was in my late teens, first beginning to preach with an evangelistic passion, many times in those years I was preaching evangelistic messages uh, in churches that were holding revival services and even in outdoor meetings, and I would give invitations 
And I would invite people to get out of their seat and come down the aisle and trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You wonder why I don't do that so much now. It's because I look out and I know you all. <laughs> I, I, I know who you are. I know where you stand. And uh, it's very, very seldom that I feel the Spirit of God uh, telling me to give that kind of an invitation on a Sunday morning. But used to, I was preaching to larger audiences, and I didn't know where they stood, and I would make that invitation to come and trust Jesus Christ. And I always wondered, will today or tonight be the night that that last person comes to Christ? And suddenly a trumpet sounds, and the heavens burst open, and Jesus Christ comes home, comes back to this planet. You know, that day will come. That person may be in South America, they may be in China, they may be in Australia, they may be in the Middle East, they may be in some African nation, but that day will come when the gospel is preached and God knows the time and the hour, the moment and the person, and the last name in the book will say yes to Jesus Christ. And in that moment, it is finished. And Jesus Christ, with the blast of the trumpet and the shout of the archangel, will come back for his own. It'll be in the thick of battle. It'll be in the heat of the greatest uh, tumult of all history. As the powers of darkness wrestle to defeat the people of God and all the nations are gathered against Israel. But in that moment, there will be that last person that says yes to Jesus Christ. And then this mess will get fixed and he will reign upon this earth and straighten it out and we will reign forever with him because the Bible says in that moment if you have died before that moment comes don't be afraid because God is going to resurrect you in that moment to meet him in the air and in the clouds of glory don't be afraid of that and if you're still living, praise God, you're going to be translated in a moment, the twinkling of an eye, you're going to get to see Him. And you'll be a part of that welcoming the coming King. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all the world, and then the end shall come. Are we part of the mission? Are we part of the passion? Does the coming of Jesus Christ affect the way you read the paper, the way you interpret current events? Does it change the way you live because you anticipate His coming? love the story of that, uh, that British um, politician who said, I have not had a conscious hour in the last 40 years that I didn't think about the return of Jesus Christ. As John Soper said, I don't know if that was in a overstatement or not maybe it wasn't but every time I read the paper and see new levels of heinous crimes every time I watch another election and see us getting further and further away from God every time I see uh, new uh, tornadoes and new hurricanes and new volcanoes and new earthquakes and new tsunamis and an increasing of wars and rumors of wars. I read the paper and see the signs. I think about Jesus coming back. I think about his return. 
And John says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Father, I pray this morning that as we consider the coming of Jesus Christ, that it would be a motivating factor in our lives, that it would affect our worldview, that it would change the way we see things. I pray that it would be our blessed hope, that we would not invest our hope in the things of this earth, but in the Lord Jesus Christ and the future and His coming. And I pray, Father, that it would be our passion for world mission, that loving Him means loving the people for whom He died, that we would be willing to spare no expense in reaching out to the lost of this world, going to the outer regions, going to the inner regions, going to places where we're not allowed to go by the systems of this world, going to places where it's dangerous, going to places where it's not, like next door, going to share the message of Jesus Christ, knowing that one day, that last person will come to faith and you will come back. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.